Well, turn in your Bibles to the last chapter of the last book as we look at the last verses of God's Word. It's the end of the end. The end of Revelation, that is, which of course is the last book in the Bible, the final words that the Spirit of God, we believe, divinely inspired to be written, and by which the canon of Scripture is closed, and it is these words to which we turn our attention today. We've been journeying through the book of Revelation for the better part of this year, starting in late January, and we're wrapping it up today. If you'll remember the way that this book has, uh, has gone as we've unfolded it through the year, it's divided into two big sections, roughly chapters 1 through 11, the first half or so, shows the church's conflict on earth, shows the people of God embattled and persecuted and under pressure with all of the various uh, earthly enemies that uh, she has, while Christ is fighting on her behalf and ultimately victorious. And then the second half of the book, chapters 12 through 22, show Christ's conflict with the dragon. That is, it shows us the same battle, the same struggle of the church on earth, but it gives us the sort of heavenly perspective, if you will. It focuses on Christ and his battle with with Satan and his agents, depicted as a dragon and as beasts coming out of the earth and the sea. And the, the city of man is this great city, uh, Babylon, who is depicted as, a, as a, a harlot. So, in both divisions, the church is persecuted and avenged and protected and ultimately victorious. And so clearly the, the overarching message of Revelation is plain, that Christ will conquer and that the people of God will endure to the end and find themselves vindicated and with their king forever. At this point, Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 6, we come to what is generally regarded as the epilogue. And you know that in, in a book, say in a novel, the main story has come to an end and maybe the author wants to give you a little glimpse of what comes down the road or make some comments about uh, something about the journey. And that's what's going on in these last few verses. The vision or really the visions that have been given to John, these images that he's seen throughout the chapters 4 through 21, the first part of chapter 22, have now come to an end. The vision is done, and John is going to hear first from an angel, and then apparently from Jesus himself in an epilogue that rehearses some of the book's main themes and provides some final exhortations to God's people. And truly, these verses, this epilogue, plays like a greatest hits of the book of Revelation. If you uh, read through this uh, with, uh, with the Bible open, you will see uh, cross-reference after cross-reference uh, of, of ways and places where other themes and language and images from throughout the book of Revelation are uh, hit upon yet again here. And so we have echoes of, of the entirety of the book of Revelation in these closing few verses. It's an interesting study in its own right, we don't have time to do that today, but I would encourage you to, to take a look at how many places in the book of Revelation find an echo in language or images uh, uh, in this uh, closing section of the book. I will draw your attention to one particular similarity, and that is between the opening of this epilogue, verses 6 through 8, and the intro to the prologue of the book, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. There's a very obviously intentional bookend here. 
that the epilogue is intended to create along with the prologue. In both the epilogue and the prologue, we find God has sent his angel to deliver this vision. In both the epilogue and the prologue, John, the apostle, is named as the one who's bearing witness to these visions. The only place in the book he's named, the only two places, rather, he's named is in the prologue of the book and in the epilogue of the book. I, John, bore witness to these things. That's mentioned in both places. In both the epilogue and the prologue, there's a benediction, that is a a statement of blessing upon the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. That was the first of seven blessings in chapter 1, verse 3, and it is the final uh, blessing spoken again, or or actually I guess it's the sixth of the seven blessings that's spoken here in chapter 22, verse 6. And then finally, uh, the, the visions that are going to be given in the book at the prologue, at the outset, and the visions that have been given in the book, as you're standing at the back side of it, are visions of what, quote, must soon take place. That phrase is reiterated in both prologue and epilogue. So clearly these verses are, are closing up the book in an organized uh, way, and we're intended to see those echoes. Let me read for you verses 6 through 21 of Revelation chapter 22, and then we'll unpack them together. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.
the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Well, in these final words, we find words about our expectation and the need for our preparation. That's the organization, broadly, of the message today. Our expectation and our preparation. Here's the expectation. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. This is our expectation. It, something regarding the nearness of the time is repeated four times in this epilogue. In verse 6, we're told, just as we were in the prologue, that this vision concerns the things that must soon take place. In verse 10, we're told the time is near. In verse 12, Jesus says himself, Behold, I am coming soon. And Jesus says again in verse 20, Surely I am coming soon. Surely. This is certain. This is not in question. We're not guessing about this. Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. Now this raises an obvious challenge. From where we stand, it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to heaven in the sight of the apostles as they saw him go, and then they were staring into the clouds, and the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the clouds? He will return in the same way as you saw him go, and sends them on their way, and the mission of the church begins in earnest. It's been roughly 2,000 years since that happened. That doesn't seem very soon to us, does it? What's the deal? Is Jesus misleading us? He wants us to think he's coming soon, but he's not really, and he knows it. Is Jesus mistaken? Does he think he's coming soon? And it just actually turns out that he's wrong about that? Well, I don't think so. I think there's two things that will help us to understand this pronouncement about the soonness of the return of Jesus. Number one, soon is relative. Soon is relative. We're told in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 8, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And indeed, the context of that statement is the return of the Lord. Peter is saying that, the, he says, The Lord is not slow concerning his promises, as some of you regard slowness, but he is patient waiting all, for all to come to repentance, right? And that's where he says, and for, for, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And so from God's perspective, time passes differently. God himself is not limited to the confines of time in the same way that we are, standing outside of it as its creator, and so it's a little hard for us to necessarily understand how that is. But soon to God is not the same as soon to us. When I think soon, I think probably within, I don't know, the day, the week, the month, the year, the decade, at least within my lifetime, right? And it seems that perhaps some of the, the disciples of Jesus, maybe they didn't necessarily think for sure that Jesus was going to come right away, but they probably didn't envision a 2,000-year gap between Jesus saying, I'm coming soon, and, uh, and when he would actually return to the earth. And so their perspective was limited, just as our perspective is limited. Nevertheless, the perspective on time from our vantage point, is very different than God's perspective on time. And so it's useful to say, when God says something is going to happen soon, he might not mean soon on our timetable. He means on his timetable, 
right? What seems long to us may be very short in God's eyes. And in fact, if a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, it's really from God's perspective been about two days since Jesus ascended into heaven. That's not that long, is it? So that's one thing to bear in mind is that our perspective is different. God is patient. We are impatient. And we need to learn to trust God and wait on his timing. It doesn't mean that Jesus is lying to us or that he was wrong. It simply means his perspective is different than ours. And we need to be okay with living on his timetable and not ours. But there's a second thing that I think might help us even more to consider what's meant by, the, by soon. To say that I am coming soon. I think soon here might mean something more like at any time. At any time. Theologians call this the imminence of Christ's return. And to say that, he is, that his return is imminent is not necessarily to say it's going to be immediate. It's going to be right away. It's to say that there's nothing standing in the way of his return. It's to say that all of the great acts of redemption and history that needed to take place in order to prepare the way for Christ's return have happened. And so we are not waiting for some next great big redemptive historical act. They've been fulfilled. And so now Jesus could come back at any time. The kingdom has been inaugurated and now we're just waiting for the king to come back and set up the kingdom in full forever. And that truly could happen at any moment. Like a thief in the night, says Paul in 1 Thessalonians, will the day of the Lord come. Why like a thief? Certainly not because Jesus is like a thief in, in his intentions or his purposes, but in that you never know when a thief may strike. That's the whole point. He says while some are saying there is peace and there is prosperity, suddenly judgment will come upon them because the day of the Lord will have arrived. And for the wicked, the day of the Lord, as we've seen, is a day of judgment. It's a day of reckoning. And so like a thief in the night comes Jesus. And we don't know when that may be. Tom Schreiner says, every generation has rightly said Jesus is coming soon because all the great redemptive events needed for him to return have been accomplished. And so when Jesus says repeatedly here, the time is near, the end is near, this must soon take place, surely I am coming soon. He doesn't necessarily mean to put us on the alert to be like looking into the clouds, right? Let's quit our jobs, let's leave our communities, let's go out to the hills and sing Kumbaya until Jesus comes because it's going to happen any time. There have been people that took that approach. There have been groups throughout history who have indeed sort of abandoned the regular uh, rhythms of life because they expected Jesus was going to come right away. There have been all manner of efforts to predict when he's going to come. Well, if you consider these prophecies in the Old Testament and you compare it to the newspaper headlines and what's going on around the world right now, we think Jesus is going to come back. And there's been, oh my goodness, I don't know how many. He's coming back in 1944. He's coming back in 1982. He's coming back in 2003. It's been over and over. People think they can figure out when he's going to come back. That's not what we're supposed to do. Jesus doesn't want us to know when he's coming back. And in fact, Jesus told his disciples, only the Father in heaven knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels, not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour of his coming. 
So sir, surely he does not intend for us to become uh, newspaper uh, interpreters looking for the precise moment of his return. The last days began when Christ was raised from the dead and he inaugurated the age to come. John and his readers were living in the last days. You and I are living in the last days. Don't regard the return of Jesus as a distant, impersonal, disconnected event in some far-off future. Jesus, the Lord of glory and the Savior of our souls, is personally coming back to the earth to be seen and heard by all. And when he comes, he will bring us safely into his eternal kingdom. That is the expectation of the people of God throughout this age. It was the expectation of John and his readers, and it's no less the expectation of us today in 2021, the week of Thanksgiving. Our expectation is that Jesus is coming soon. How then should we live? Raises obvious questions for us. In light of our expectation that Christ will return soon, what does that mean for us And that is where we find help in the remainder of this passage concerning our preparation. If our expectation is that Jesus is coming soon, our preparation is that we must live ready. We must live ready for his return. I see three exhortations or or three ways that we ought to go about preparing ourselves for the soon return of Jesus. In, the, in these verses, and I'll point them out to you here. Number one, our preparation is to pursue lives of holiness. To pursue lives of holiness. If you look in verse 7, this apparently has, the, the, the speaker has changed from an angel to Jesus, and he says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That's the sixth of the seven blessing statements, the benedictions of Revelation. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It's almost identical to the one we found back in chapter 1, verse 3, which said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and who hears them and who keeps them. The one who reads them and who hears them and who keeps them were promised a blessing. In chapter 1, and here, simply those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, what does that mean to keep the words of this prophecy? Because the way we think about prophecy is it's just foretelling future events, right? How am I supposed to keep something that's about things in the future? Well, I think it should be pretty clear to us by now that Revelation is not only about the future. Revelation is largely about this age in which we live and the kinds of challenges we're going to face. The kind of enemies who are going to confront God and his people and the ways in which we need to endure. Indeed, each of the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 ended with a promise to the one who conquers. There's a battle to be fought, a battle of faith, a battle of the Spirit. And the one who conquers, that is the one who endures in the faith, will be given the share in the tree of life and the, uh, the city of God and all of these wonderful blessings. So keeping the words of Revelation surely include persevering in faith. To persevere in faith, which means 
when we're challenged, when we're pressed, when we're insulted, when it would be easier to walk away, we remain in the faith. We keep naming Jesus as Lord, even when it's costly to us. To keep the words of this prophecy must mean at least persevering in faith and continuing to trust on Jesus. It must mean turning away from immorality and impurity. If you look down to verse 15, he says outside, that is outside of the gates of the city, right? So the, the, the new creation likened to the city of Jerusalem. Outside of the city are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is clearly a picture that those who live in opposition to the word and way of God will find themselves excluded from the final blessing of Christ's eternal kingdom. So to keep the words of this prophecy must mean to live lives of purity, to avoid and and abhor immorality and idolatry. To keep the words of Revelation means to reject the siren song of Babylon with its riches and its indulgences. We see this beautiful woman who's decked out in jewelry and fine linens, who's riding this dragon in Revelation chapter 17. She's called the harlot, the city of Babylon, which is a picture of all of the wealth and riches and uh, and self-indulgence of man in the form of earthly systems and governments and authority structures, cities that are... Uh, and, and groups of people who are materialistic and greedy for more and who make themselves rich on the, at the expense of the poor and these kinds of things. So keeping the words of this prophecy mean rejecting the song of Babylon. I will not live for pleasure. I will not live for riches. I will not live for earthly status and approval. I will live for a different city, a different kingdom. And then finally, to keep the words of Revelation must mean faithfully worshiping Jesus alone. And just as this first generation of Christians found themselves challenged literally to worship the emperor of the Roman Empire, to name Caesar as Lord, so Christians in our day and in our place will be pressed to reject Jesus as Lord and to name other things, other powers, as ultimate and to pledge our allegiance to those things and to the extent that any other power sets itself up as the one to whom you grant you should grant allegiance we are being pressed to worship another and so surely keeping the words of this prophecy means to take these warnings seriously and to worship Jesus alone to not be led into idolatry and worshiping other gods So it means to keep the words of the prophecy. Pursuing lives of holiness, uh, we see this again in verse 11. And this uh, this is a very interesting phrase here. He says, let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Now that sounds really weird. As though Jesus is exhorting wicked people to keep doing wicked things. Is, Is Jesus really saying, hey, that's cool, keep going. Wickedness is great, you're on the right track. Clearly this is not an encouragement to uh, sinners to continue sinning. Rather, it's an encouragement to the righteous not to allow the evil surrounding you to distract you from honoring Christ with your life. In your words, your actions, your choices, your relationships, your money, 
your political alliances and actions. Don't get drawn off the path into ditches of immorality, of doubt, of idolatry. I think that's what he means when he says, let the wicked do wicked and let the righteous be righteous. I don't think he means it's good for the wicked to do wicked. What he means is that's going to happen. He's already told us and shown us and promised and prophesied to us in many ways the world will set itself up against God. It will be wicked. What he says is, let them do what they're going to do. You follow me. Clearly, we are called to lives of holiness, lives of righteousness. So we're to pursue lives of holiness in living ready. Second exhortation that I see in these verses regarding living ready is to invite sinners into the new creation. To invite sinners into the new creation. There is an undeniable missionary call to the church in the book of Revelation. Look at verse 10. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. That differs sharply from Daniel, from whom much of the language and imagery of Revelation is drawn. Daniel's prophecy came to an end with God saying to him, seal up the words of this prophecy, for it's not yet time. But here, this revelation to John, he is told the exact opposite. Do not seal the words of this this prophecy. The time is near. In other words, these words should be heard These words should be known. These warnings should be delivered to sinners in every place and in every time. Do not seal up these words. Let them be opened. Let them be on our lips. In verse 14, where we get the the seventh and final of these benedictions, these blessing statements. This is Jesus once again. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Surely, friends, this is an invitation from the Lord Jesus to anyone to repent of their sins, to come near to him by faith and to find that they are included in the tree of life and in the city, the new creation. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And we've seen this language elsewhere. And in chapter 7, verse 14, as the saints were coming out of the tribulation, John said, who are these? And the angel said to John, these are the saints coming out of the tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How does one's robe get washed white? It gets washed white by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because he died in the place of sinners. And so his blood covers our unrighteousness and our guilt and our shame. And so the one who trusts Christ is washed white by the blood of the Lamb. As paradoxical as that is, the image of blood on a robe making it white, that's the power of grace. That's the power of Christ's gospel. And this is an invitation. The one who washes his robe, that is the one who repents of his sin and trusts in Christ, will be included. Will have the right to the tree of life and to enter the city by the gates. In contrast to the ones who remain outside the city, the dogs and the immoral and the things that we just talked about a moment ago in verse 15. 
They will have the right to enter the city by the gates. It is their city if they will simply come in faith. And then we see that invitation made plain again by the Spirit of God and the church of Jesus. When in verse 17 it says, the Spirit and the bride say, come. I think this is a word of invitation to sinners. Some think that this is uh, the church speaking to Jesus and inviting him to come back. I don't think that's, that's what this is. And in fact, if you look at that, that verse in its context, it says that the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is a gospel invitation. These are words of gospel life coming through the church, the bride of Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God. When the church gives witness, the Spirit of God empowers her. The words of gospel invitation from God's people are God's words. And so we're called here, I think, very plainly to give this gospel invitation. So part of what it means to live ready for the coming of Jesus is to be actively engaged with the mission to invite sinners to repent of their sin and trust on Christ to make disciples of all nations. And Jesus promised his people that when they did that, he would be with us even till the very end of the age. So to, to live ready means to invite sinners into the new creation. And the final thing that I, that I think it means to live ready is to long for his coming. It's to long for his coming. This is more implication than exhortation from the text, but if you look at the end here, at verse 20, the Lord says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And then this is apparently the Apostle John's commentary in response to that. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. John is giving his hearty agreement. He's expressing his full-throated support for the notion that Jesus would come again and he'd come again soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is a prayer. This is a plea with God. Would you come? Jesus, will you come to this earth? And that's the heart of John in Verse 20, and it ought to be the heart of all of God's people. In Hebrews 9, verse 28, we're told that Jesus will return, quote, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus is expecting us to be eagerly waiting for his return. In 2 Timothy 4, 8, Paul says that the crown of righteousness is laid up for him and, quote, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The notion of Jesus coming personally in glory to welcome his people home is something that we should love. It should draw our hearts upward in praise and worship and joy to consider Jesus is coming for me. He's coming for us. Titus 2.13, Paul says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the church. And that is not to say it's this wishful thinking pie in the sky, I sure hope this works out. It is the certain coming reality to which we look and for which we are to long that Christ will come. We should long for his coming. Anthony Hoykema says, the loss of a lively, vital anticipation of the second coming of Christ is a sign of a most serious spiritual malady in the church. All Christians should eagerly look forward to Christ's return and should live in the light of that expectation every day anew. That doesn't mean we should get obsessed with unfolding and figuring out all the details. That doesn't mean that every conversation we have with fellow Christians should be debating the millennium and the timing of the rapture and all those sorts of things. I don't think that's what it means to long for his appearing. I think what it means is we know all the details we're not sure about. There's plenty of stuff that we can think might be this way, but we can disagree about that, and we're not really sure how it's going to unfold. But what we do know, what he has plainly said to us is, I am coming soon. So I think to long for his return means we welcome that day. I don't know if you've ever prayed something like, Lord, don't come back just yet. Right? I really want you to come back, but could you wait until I've fill in the blank of whatever sort of human life experience you're hoping to have? I've certainly prayed things like that before in my own life. But I think the faithful heart of a Christian longs to see Jesus. And the more you live in the brokenness and the sin and the hurt of this world, the more the image of the face of Jesus that sets everything right is precious and is powerful. So to live ready means to pursue lives of holiness. And it means to invite sinners into the new creation. And it means to long for his coming. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's about our expectation that Jesus is coming soon and our preparation in living ready for that day. Two concluding thoughts from the last four verses of the book. First of all, Revelation is the last authoritative word from God. Verses 18 and 19 provide these warnings for anyone who would add to the prophecies in the book or who would take away from the prophecies in the book. And certainly that is relevant to the the book itself. And so when he says that, when he warns us against adding to the, the, the prophecy of the book, surely we could add to the prophecy of the book, not necessarily by writing new scripture and adding to its prophecies, but perhaps even by going well beyond what the scriptures actually plainly teach us to say, I, you know, it's clear that Jesus is coming at this time or this place or whatever. I think all those ways that we can obsess about the details may be an adding to the words of prophecy in, in a sense. And to the one who adds to the words of the prophecy, to him will be added the plagues that are described in this book, which is not a a pretty picture. And the one who takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, well, surely that doesn't necessarily mean just cutting out parts of it and saying we don't like that. It might mean just failing to live in light of them. It might mean we don't take these warnings seriously. And so if we hear Jesus warn and we hear Jesus exhorting us to stay faithful and we don't take those things seriously, in a way we're, we're removing words from the prophecy of this book. And in that way, 
we are warned that he will remove his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the book. So certainly it's, it's relative to this book itself, but the canon of scripture is closed. And the Bible represents the totality of what God has infallibly and authoritatively communicated to man. So as the book of Revelation closes, and it is the last of the books of the Bible that are divinely inspired by the Spirit of God, then surely Scripture itself is done being written. So to add to the words of the prophecy of this book may include things like assigning an authoritative degree of God said to stuff that we think, to stuff that we like. God told me to do this. God said that his people must do this. And the more sort of authority we place in human words, the more in danger we are of adding to the words of the prophecy of this book. It is thus the only, the word of God is the only unbreakable standard of belief and conduct for God's people. And so there's something to be said about our doctrine of the scriptures, our our understanding of what the Bible is. Let us be people of the book. Revelation is the last authoritative word from God. And then the second and final observation I want to make is this. If the last word of the Bible is revelation, I find it fitting and beautiful that the last word of this divinely inspired book is a word of grace. Do you see it? Look at verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The last word is a word of grace because that's what it's all about. That's what we all need to carry out, to keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Brothers and sisters, we need grace. We can't do this in our own strength. We can't do this in our own wisdom. Our own moral, uh, moral character is not strong enough, is not deep enough. Our wells are too shallow. We need the grace that comes to us through the Spirit of God who indwells us as we trust in Christ. It is a word of grace because indeed all of the Christian life and all of the promises made to those who conquer and this beautiful image of the new heavens and new earth, the new creation, are gifts of God's grace to those who believe. We don't earn them. We don't fight for them. We receive them because God has given it to us by his sheer grace. What a fitting conclusion. And we all need the the presence of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, hope is alive. Our king is returning soon. But in the meantime, there is work to be done. May we fix our hope on the glory to be revealed at his coming. May our hearts be lashed to the honor of his great name. And in the words of an old Fanny Crosby hymn, let us hope, let us watch, and labor till the master comes. Let's pray.